we're talking about worship today and authentic worship, and I'm going to put a little work into trying to describe where we've been going for the last, oh, almost a year. And so hopefully we'll communicate a little bit about what's going on. Uh, just before I say that, that song, uh, How Great Thou Art, you know, it's like, does somebody make a note to like do that at my funeral? You know, like, I mean, this is the point where my wife says like, well, you're not dead yet, so stop making notes. But, you know, Dave Davies, my friend for 40 years, like, will you do that at my funeral? You know, crone it out there. That'd be very cool. Thank you, Dave. So, um, yeah, cool song. And cool of Jason and Jen and Ben to be able to, wonderful talent around here. Anyway, wonderful. If you brought your Bible, or if you have an app, or if you don't care and you just want to watch it on the screen, we're going to read a rather long passage from Ephesians chapter 4. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, probably written somewhere around 45 or 50 A.D., uh, some 15 years or so after Jesus uh, had his earthly ministry. And, um, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5. Did I say that? What, what am I talking about? It's over in Luke. I'm on a... <laughs> I'm like, this is not going to work. I'm on the passage that we use later in the, in the teaching. Luke chapter 24. There you go. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. It's rather long, and so I'll read it, so follow along. It's easy to follow because it's a story. Luke 24, 13. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. Um, that same day means this was the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's actually that afternoon. Remember in the morning, uh, Mary or the women were at the tomb and Jesus rose from the dead, and now it's later in that very same day, first day of the week, Sunday. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about uh, all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other as you walk while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know the, the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all these things, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared! Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And wouldn't it have been great if somebody had a video recorder 
right then. <laughs> Verse 28. And they came near the village to which they were going. He walked ahead as if going on, as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening. The day is now, now nearly over. So he went to stay with him. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening up the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning while we walked on the road, while the scriptures were being explained? Who was he? And in a flash, he's gone. At its very core, everyone, at a base definition of what is Christian worship is none other than an encounter with the risen Jesus, with the risen Jesus Christ. At its most base definition, worship is an encounter with Jesus. It glorifies God, which is the chief end of humanity. But it is an encounter, and a very real encounter it is. It's not just in the head. It's in the whole person. It's in what we might call our soul. And the sacrament that we just celebrated in the Protestant church, there are two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's table. In that sacrament we just celebrated, uh, that began with Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. This is my body and this is uh, my blood. Eat, drink, the new covenant, and have hope and belong. The apostles in the early church and, and onward for nearly 2,000 years have really pointed to Luke's account here in chapter 24 to explain or at least grasp what was going on when they celebrated the Lord's table. Not really the part there um, out of uh, 1 Corinthians where we get those other words from Paul. It's the flash of the moment with Jesus where he is revealed, where you didn't know who he was, and now you know, but it doesn't linger. It's the un an indescribable unwordedness of it. It's the fact that you can't put it into words. You can't dissect it. You can't break it down into any other parts. Jesus appears and you go, huh. All you can do is experience it. Very real, very risen, very present. It's Jesus. This is a mystery. And we don't like to talk about mysteries in our culture. We certainly don't like the word mysticism. But the early church, and for hundreds and hundreds of years, have understood this as a mysterious moment in the faith. And it happens in each and every one of us at several times throughout our lives, maybe for you every week. You see, everyone, if you want hard data, if you want scientific evidence... You do not have faith anymore. I'm not saying faith means that you throw out your brain and now you're stupid. We're not talking about that. Certainly do the work on that. What we're talking about is the actual experience of worship, of being in Christ, of being a follower of Jesus. And if you need hard data, and that's all you want to have, then I'm sure we could find a robot and some supercomputers to, to take your place. But you won't be a human. Humans have a soul, and they are mysterious. And we find our meaning 
in that worship experience. Most of the time, this account of the two disciples for the last few hundred years, this on the road to Emmaus here, has been used to factually, you're trying to reduce it down to some sort of science that says, well, this is just evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, bodily and physically, and so we're all happy about that. And it certainly says that, no doubt about it. That's not what the early church, though, thought about it. What they thought was what they experienced is that Jesus shows up mysteriously, and in a flash you recognize him, and then he's gone. And you're left with something in your gut that says, I don't have any words for this. That's worship. That's worship. All worship is meant to usher us into the presence of Jesus. For Christians, for Christians, Jesus is more than just merely remembered, just a memorial, like a wake for a dead guy. It's not that at all. Paul assumes that Jesus is present in worship because he puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He says this, and he says it as in an assumptive way, like he already thinks, you already know this, right? He says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, Paul says, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Don't you already know that? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And if you try and explain that at that moment, you won't do any better than just saying, huh, so we're one with Christ. Bread, drink, body, all of us, Jesus. Just bullets. That's all you're left with. The Apostle Paul assumes that the church understands that when we participate in the bread and the cup, we participate in Jesus. One loaf, one cup makes us one with Jesus and each other. That's a mystery. So why am I attempting to explain, I do mean attempting, why am I attempting to explain Jesus' real presence in worship and in the Lord's table this morning? Well, if you've been around Lakeland since last fall, I've been vigorously introducing us to more written out liturgical prayers, liturgy, uh, what we would really rather call gathered prayers. We say these prayers when we gather together, but they're really in larger terms and more categories they are called liturgical prayers. They're written out prayers that we all recite. They're not spontaneous prayers like we're all used to in churches like ours. This has been going on since last fall. And also since March of this year, we've been doing this lengthy experiment of doing the Lord's table every morning. We're doing the Eucharist, the communion, every Sunday morning. We've been trying to do that. This is a major shift around here at Lakeland. And I wanted to give you the experience of it before explaining it so you would understand a little bit about what what we're talking about. And it's been very intentional. Back in the 1990s, when Lakeland started in about 1995, 1996... The American church was in serious trouble during those days. Basically, the water level was staying about the same. The same number of people came in as went out the back door of the church. This actually is still pretty much holding true until you get in the specifics of various kinds of churches and denominations and experiences. But nonetheless, the church has not really been growing in America. It's growing in Asia and in Africa is where the new Christianity is. We are the old guard. The, the real church is going on on other places, yeah? 
So Lakeland began as a place to try and address the fact that church was no longer uh, reaching out to people who were outside of the faith. That's why we started. People were saying back then that church is boring, it's guilt-driven, in other words, kind of the hellfire brimstone stuff, and that they were money-grubbing, that they were asking for money too much. So Lakeland said, okay, we won't do that. We will try and be relevant to culture. Part of that also said, and we won't do communion every week, and we're sure not going to do those old, stale, dead, written-out prayers that seem so boring. That's lumped in with boring. We're not going to do any of that stuff. It's going to be fresh and snappy and creative, and we're going to get it done. And I think we pulled it off pretty well. Creativity is still a huge value around here. Things went on, uh, and we began to see people coming. There was another complexity going on, and this is, uh, we could have a nice discussion about this out in the lobby afterwards if you want, because there's some sociological data that was going on. Uh, Baby boomers, baby boomers were coming at the tail end of that sort of scientific, modern, factual age for for about 150 years at its pinnacle. And if you don't understand all that, that's fine. But what it means is that baby boomers like to embrace atheism far more than they ever really thought of themselves as mystical and spiritual and faith and all these other sort of Christian words. Baby boomers were ashamed of being spiritual at church in particular. Now, Generation X and the millennials and everybody who's followed, they don't really have much of a problem with being spiritual. That's, a, that's the first thing. What's curious, though, is that at the same time in the 1990s when church was uh, hemorrhaging people out, At the same time, all of our culture in America and Western culture was becoming more and more spiritual. But it was not Christian spirituality. It was a spirituality that people were just making up on their own. Like the one woman said, she says, you know, on my mantle at home in my living room, I have my my old tennis tennis shoes that I got like before my divorce. And I got some dimes and some seashells that I found on the beach. And I have a little memento from my grandmother. And that's my temple. That's my worship. Okay, just made it up. And that's what our culture does. See, nobody wants to be religious, but everybody considers themselves these days spiritual. And that's a little bit of a shift for baby boomers who are a little bit more embarrassed about being spiritual. But not anymore. It's in vogue to be spiritual. It's even perhaps in vogue to call yourself mystical, if not mysterious. Spirituality's been on the upswing. But Lakeland began as a pragmatic church. We wanted to make things work. And so when we talked about the Bible, we didn't appeal to some sort of dogma or doctrine, although we might have believed that. We didn't say this is the infallible word of God, you know, and you better believe it. What we said, the Bible works. You want to work on your marriage? Then it's right here. You want to work on your finances? It's right here. You want to work on raising children? You want to work on uh, friends and family and all that? It's all right here. It works. Oh, yeah, and by the way, it's the word of God. But we knew that if you wanted to reach out to culture, you better talk in terms of pragmatism and being relevant. Now, being relevant is awesome, except for one mistake that can happen when you try to be too relevant with the Bible and the Christian faith. It can slip into consumerism. Relevance can slip into consumerism. 
And what you end up with is trying to please people, much like some sort of fast food industry or whatever, where it's like, well, you know, I don't like that sermon. I don't like that music. It's too loud. That's too slow. That's too soft. That preacher has way too much hair. I don't like the coffee, the french fries. I mean, and so we'll just go someplace else. Relevance can slip into consumerism. All of this hit me like a ton of bricks in 2004, right about the time we were moving into this building. We introduced our very first capital campaign around here, the raise the funds to be in here, which all said and done was about a $4 million project. By the mercy of God, we set records as a church that year, nationally. For our size church, there was no other church that gave more than us. And we were scared spitless about asking everybody for money because that was one of the reasons why people were supposed to be leaving church. But on the other hand, we had guys walking around here, you know, and gals too, just, we were moving seven tons of equipment and three 20-foot trailers into the movie theater over across town. And it was killing people. They're, you know, now people are starting to have babies and they're walking around with a baby tucked underneath their arm and they're pushing a cart and holding a microphone stand or something trying to load this junk up. You know, I mean, if you didn't go home with a sweaty T-shirt every Sunday, like you didn't have, you know, Jesus. It just was kind of a simple situation. Everyone was burning out. And we thought in leadership, we thought we've got to get our own place or there's not going to be anybody left to do all this equipment load. Plus, we thought we could do much better ministry if we had a place that was set up 24-7 as opposed to one day a week, which is true. So by the mercy of God, we set national records that year. But what was even crazier is once the dust began to settle, we said like, well, we need to go out and start doing some more stuff now that we kind of have some headroom to thank, you know, as opposed to just being a portable church all all the time. And so we got involved um, with the persecuted house church over in China. And I had a pastor up in Vancouver who had gone up to see, and he said, we're building schools, and this is the best way we can reach people in China, albeit all of this is illegal, of course. We're building schools for people out in the country, and uh, if you want to do that, that'd be cool. I'll let you know. I said, let me know the next time you guys have a school that you want to build. Sure enough, a few weeks later, he called up and said, there's these people in Nayang County, China, Nayang County, in the middle of, I kid you not, nowhere far from any place and these kids uh, were walking two hours to school and uh, no food extremely poor uh, and they get to school it was being uh, with state-run teachers who were sitting there smoking and drinking and reading the magazine and not teaching the kids because nobody's going to catch them at it anyway and some of these uh, parents who wanted a school were Christian, which, by the way, was left over from uh, Hudson Taylor from 1890s, which is very cool. Anyway, so we went there to check the place out, this village. I'm telling you, I, I've seen some destitution. I've been to Haiti and so forth, but I hadn't seen anything like this. Distended bellies, sores all over little tiny children's bodies. I mean, no food. The, it, was, it was the armpit of the universe. I got home, I looked it up online, and sure enough, the IMF and other places like this talked about Nyung County as being the most number one destitute place on the planet. I'm not just doing hyperbole here. It literally was that. Like, well, I've seen, I've seen the bottom of the pit now. So keep in mind, we just raised $2.4 million around here. People are stretching all sorts of, you know, things. They probably, you know, 
any counselor would say don't do. But we were giving away a lot of money. And so we walked back in here. We say, hey, you guys want to spend 10,000 bucks on building a school in the poorest place in the world? Everybody said, yeah. And then you guys gave $30,000 to a $10,000 project. Okay. Like, that's Lakeland. Pragmatic, getting the job done. But at the same time, there was a small group of people who left because they said the church should not be asking for money. They weren't talking about the China stuff because they were gone before that happened. They were talking about us building the building. And by the way, they were also the ones not carrying the baby under their arm with a sweaty T-shirt and lifting the mic stand. They were just kind of coming along. And what I realized at that moment, the big aha for me is like, you know what? Lakeland is a church that has this first step that's kind of short. You can come and you can hang forever. Still pretty true, I think. And, but somewhere along there, the church, if not Jesus, is going to ask you to take a big, serious step up. It doesn't have to involve finances. It may be uh, giving up bad habits in your life. It may be uh, how you're going to parent. It may be, how, you know, all sorts of things. I don't know what it is. It may be that you encounter a, a loss or a death or something in your life, and you're going to be required to, to find your faith. I realized Lakeland had this little short step, and then somewhere in there, there was this big leap up, and people were chucking it when it came to the big dedication, to the get serious about your faith. So in my brilliant strategy, I thought, well, let's just make the big step right at the front and just get it over with. And that's really what we began to do. Like, look, it's going to cost you a lot to be a Christian and hang out around. You're going to have to serve. It's going to take hundreds and thousands of hours. You might just leave now. You know, and of course, you know, staff and everybody's kind of like, you, you need to be quiet. That's not really working well around here. So I, I settled down. But what I did realize is the big step up is say, you know what? This is not a consumer event. This is a relationship with the creator of the universe. And it's all or nothing, folks. Come follow me and I will have you fish for others. Who, whoever wishes to follow me must give up their life, must die to yourself and come follow me. Pick up your cross and come follow me. Over and over and over, you begin to read the gospels and Jesus is saying, it is a huge step up right at the beginning. All or nothing. I'm like, okay. We're making the shift. We're gonna do that. What this looked like when we began to spell it out is it looked like deeper and greater spirituality. We're going to act and behave and be more spiritual. Unleash the spirit, and uh, we're just going to let it go. So some people are saying, well, doesn't that mean like now you want to become apostolic and Pentecostal or something like that? And like, well, we've tried that. We're just not real good at it. I don't know if we're too frumpy or we just ain't got the energy for it or the emotional high to be Pentecostal that's just not really in our DNA around here. And we just feel kind of fakey. I don't know if it's a Gen X thing, you know, like nobody likes the, you know, poison in the hair bands. I guess we're kind of more of an REM or something like that. I don't know. But there's something going on there that just kind of went our way. And so we couldn't really do that. Instead, we're, we kind of come out of, well, we come out of Presbyterian roots, and I have a big dose of Episcopalian Anglican in me from my college days, and I grew up Southern Baptist, and so you kind of start mushing that all together in some kind of weird wad of stuff, and you end up with Lakeland. And uh, so we, 
with Presbyterian and Anglican, and nowadays even a dose of Benedictine, you know, uh, uh, monastic spirituality and all this sort of thing, what you have is a pretty, oh, it sounds like we're smarter than we think we are, but a, a little more intellectual level of our spirituality around here. We didn't go the Pentecostal route. We kind of went the heady route. We understand it's difficult to grasp. But we began to introduce things like written liturgical prayers. We began to talk more about a relationship with Jesus being more mystical. And that you're not going to know it all. And yet you're going to have to be in love with Jesus anyway. As a matter of fact, if you're seeking control in your Christian life, good luck with that because it's not going to happen. The Christian life is all about giving up control. It is about surrendering. Whether you have problems with addiction or whether you just simply are just a basic material carnal person. If you want to get to know Jesus, you will have to give up control. We begin to introduce prayers that we say together. Not the free-flowing spontaneous, although we still certainly embrace all that. Instead, we begin to introduce things like what we've already done, the Lord's Prayer. So let's just talk about the Lord's Prayer here for a moment. Because the problem around Lakeland is, is we have this great value of creativity. And now we're trying to introduce something that's not creative at all. Written prayers. You know, like the same thing over and over. And these two things are just butting heads around here right now. Right? Because creativity is supposed to be spontaneous, you know. And we're all supposed to be like flowing and all sorts of things. And it's not working and, in, and, and so now we introduce something that's supposed to be, you know, you repeat. Because the power of liturgical gathered prayers is in the repetition like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, if you get that prayer down, it's not that it is a creative prayer. Amen? It's not a creative prayer. You don't, you don't say like, I never thought of that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like, that just came to me. Like, that's not what happens. You're like, I've heard this prayer since I was... Tiny. Ah, the creativity of liturgical prayers happens about when it shows up in your mind or when it shows up in your body. Yes, in your body. The power of liturgical written prayers that you get memorized. This also goes for Bible verses, of course, too, which may be more acceptable to a lot of you. The power of the Lord's Prayer is that it shows up out of muscle memory. This is what's going on these days, by the way, if you're up on this sort of thing, uh, neuroscience and so forth, is that they're realizing you don't do all your processing in your brain. You actually do your processing in your entire body. I mean, the old world already knew that. The, the Old Testament, the Hebrew world, Jesus' world, first century, you know, Roman Empire, they all understood that your body and your mind and your soul are all one. They didn't separate things like the way has been going on now for about, oh, 350 years around in Western culture. You were one. So they could understand that you put your body into it. And that's why you got smells and bells. I'm kind of big on the smells and bells. You know what I mean by smells and bells? You know, it's all this kind of stuff. Like right here, you've got, I picked this up last service and it was kind of hot. Um, and uh, this is a, uh, this is the, your YouTube moment. Um, this is on fire. Uh, this is frankincense right here. You know, frankincense, one of the three gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. And if you come into my office, I usually have this cooking. Some people then leave my office. Um, it's not exactly sort of a Hobby Lobby smell. It's much more earthier, if not choking. Um, 
and I pull out the lightweight version today. But I am into the smells and bells because I've been studying all of this now for years, and you realize that you do much more of your worship in your body. And that's why, like, well, man, they turn like Orthodox around here, Catholic or whatever. People cross themselves and all this mumbo jumbo and all this junk. It's like, I'm not trying to make us into Catholic or Orthodox. Let's get it clear. What I am trying to do is bring your body into your head and have you worship. So when you do the Lord's Prayer, it just comes out of you. So when you walk out of your, onto your deck in the morning or whatever, and you see the sun coming up, that what comes out of you says, that it comes out and says, um, you know, my Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will. You know what I mean? Daily bread, Lord. That's what we're after. That it comes out of you. The prayer comes out of you unbidden. In other words, it comes out of you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't thank it. It comes out of your muscle memory. Just out of your body. Like this, someone gave me a while back this Tibetan singing bowl. You're like, oh, great. Now we got pagan junk going on in the church. You know, Tibetan singing bowls. So when I ding this, you guys are now thinking pagan thoughts. Aren't you? Little demons dancing in your head. No. We just call ourselves to prayer for Alexio Divina with this sort of deal. It marks time. Take anything. I mean, you know, if you want to go there, right? Christmas was originally a pagan holiday, a fertility holiday. You bring the green tree in because it's still green. Well, what did Christians do? They turned it into something Christian because you had the day off. <laughs> and we still do that. What we want is to be people where our relationship with Jesus, this real presence like Luke chapter 24 is talking about, like 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about, the body of Jesus comes welling up out of, your, out of your flesh. Yes, your mind and your heart, but it comes out. I want to make you into spiritual people. Yes, I even want to make you into more mystical people because I think this is what is relevant to our culture today. It doesn't first start with wanting to be relevant. But if people are spiritual, why in the world is the church not the most spiritual place on the planet? Why will people spend thousands of dollars to climb up a Himalayan mountain and talk to the Dalai Lama when they could come over to Lakeland Community Church at 913? What are we doing wrong? It's you and it's me being the most spiritual people we can be, not faking it, genuinely connected to the real Jesus who is in your heart and soul. That's what we're after. And I think that's what people are after who don't believe like we do, but we agree on spirituality. That's what we're after. I want to teach you to pray in your body as well as in your head. And that's why we've been doing this grand experiment of written prayers. Um, if we were doing it right, we'd probably just do the same thing. And so look, this is a, this is a shot against your bow, over your bow, I mean. Uh, we'll probably do like the same prayers like for seven weeks in a row here sometime and give you a card. Because what we'd love to do is get the Lord's Prayer or maybe something else, like some of these um, uh, Celtic prayers that we like to do around here, the St. Brendan, St. Patrick, St. Aidan, this stuff. You know, in the 7th century, the gospel came to Great Britain and it... Great Britain was isolated from the European continent and they developed their own brand of spirituality, their own brand of what they called Catholic. Of course, there really wasn't the Roman Catholic Church then. They got isolated, as with a lot of British stuff. And, uh, and so 
we find this prayer, uh, it's really called a song or a canticle. And you guys need a break right now, so stand up and let's do this one uh, that we've done out of the Celtic prayers right now. And then you can sit back down and go on looking at your phone. Uh, all right, so now this is a, supposed to be set to music, but it isn't. And instead, uh, we're going to say it and recite it together. It's the togetherness that becomes important, and I'll make a comment about it afterwards. So join me in this. We've done it before. Ready? Christ as a light, illumine and guide me. Christ as a shield, overshadow me. Christ under me, Christ over me, Christ beside me, on my left and my right. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak, in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. This day be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Christ is a light, Christ is a shield, Christ beside me on my left and on my right. Well done, everyone. Have a seat. Now, what we're after with this, what we're after is let's just say tomorrow morning you've been thinking about it all weekend and you have to go into a meeting. And it's not going to be a fun meeting. You've got to meet with your employer or your employees or some group or somebody who's got a complaint or whatever. And you've got to go in. There's going to be a lot of egos and some personal agendas going on and all of that sort of stuff. It's going to be some work. But you're up for it. What would be awesome is if you had this prayer of St. Patrick in your flesh and you're walking down the hall and what happens is, is what comes out of you is being the heart of each to whom I speak in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak. You didn't think it. You didn't try and remember it. It just came out of you. That's you and Jesus walking together all day long. What we need is training on this. What we need uh, is, is spiritual athleticism. This is the metaphor Paul uses all the time. He says, you guys are athletes. You need to train like an athlete for the spiritual life. Now, as somebody said to me, like, yeah, that usually meant that if I wasn't good enough, then I'm going to go to hell. That's not what, this, what Paul's talking about at all. Your salvation's secure. That's not a problem. What's really going on is that we need to train to have Jesus walk with us all day long. That's the real training, the spiritual athleticism that's going on. See, the problem is we all think we're supposed to be like some sort of spiritual comedian, like Robin Williams, where we just snap, man, we flow. We can, we're the wittiest person in the world. We can pray like Robin Williams, if Robin Williams ever prayed. You know what I mean? Like you could think up stuff to say to Jesus and say to other people and it'd just be so spiritual and brilliant that you look smart. And it's just a test pattern. There ain't nothing there. Instead, we have to train like athletes. And that's why you find Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 saying this. Do you not know, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, not without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. And he's going on, we're talking, we think this is just simply talking about sin, but it's also talking about putting everything else into your body. What kind of food do you eat? Why, the Desert Fathers, which is what my specialty is that I'm working on these days, the 
spirituality of the Desert Fathers from the fourth century. They often said, uh, pray, you know, go to prayers, do your stuff. Watch what you put in your mouth. Watch your food. And they'd say, watch your stomach. There's a lot more there, and it's a whole other talk to talk about the body of, I mean, the spirituality of food and body and so forth. Authentic worship is never vague or mushy. It's not just a feeling. I'm not attempting to turn us into Catholics, everyone. I, not that I have any problem with Catholics. I'm a Benedictine oblate. I wear this around my neck, you know, so I, that means I live by the rule of St. Benedict. And if you don't know what that means, then Google it. Um, it doesn't mean that we're all going to be walking around saying om with a Tibetan bowl, you know, or having to snort frankincense. I, I'm not talking about that sort of thing. I'm simply saying there's more to spirituality than what meets the eye, and it needs to be more attractive. What we want to have, what we want to have is these type of prayers well up out of you when you need them most, when your child is sick at 2 o'clock in the morning, when you have to go to the hospital and visit somebody, and instead of saying, I have no idea what to say, you don't say anything. You just go and be with them. And maybe you say the Lord's Prayer together because it's right there. I have yet to go to a funeral that was actually kind of spur of the moment or whatever where we didn't end up singing Amazing Grace because even people who don't go to church know that hymn and it brings meaning. It's right there in their body, in their flesh. That's what we're trying to get done around here is turn us into fully worshiping people. And I'll do whatever it takes to form Christ in you. Our whole staff and all of our resources around here are trying to equip you, you, the saints, to go out and do ministry. That's what we're trying to do. That you'll wash back out in the culture this week and change the world. We're just trying to do our very best to get that done. We may not do it well, but we're trying and we'll keep trying as best we can. Uh, I was struck by this quote a few years ago and... Um, I think we're going to do some uh, video here in a moment and we'll be wrapping things up. I was struck by this quote a few years ago from a, a 20th century theologian, Karl Rahner. And Karl Rahner made this statement. He said, The Christian of the future will be a mystic or he will not exist at all. The Christian of the future will be a mystic or he will not exist at all. I'm not totally sure what Rahner means by that. But I understand it, that Christianity is in trouble. And what we need is deeper spirituality, not better french fries at church. You know what I'm saying? That's what we need. And what they're looking for, each, everyone out there in your culture and at your place of work and in your neighborhood and the people you run around with, they're looking for you to be the best Christian. That doesn't just mean that you're moral and that you have character and virtues. All that's good. What it means is that you look like a spiritual person that Jesus is real, that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what we want to have happen. Join me. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.